Thanks for tuning in to the Drive On Podcast, where we're focused on giving hope and strength to the entire military community. Whether you're a veteran, active duty, guard, reserve, or a family member, this podcast will share inspirational stories and resources that are useful to you. I'm your host, Scott Lucio, and now let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Drive On Podcast. Today, my guest is Mike LaMonica. Mike is an Air Force veteran who serves on the Combat Control Foundation's Board of Directors, and the Combat Control Foundation provides care and support to combat controllers, their families, and other members of the military community through its programs or through partnerships with similar charitable organizations. And so we're here today to talk about the foundation and everything that they're doing to help out uh, the community that they are a part of. So welcome to the show, Mike. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Hey, Scott, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and always a good opportunity to get the word out, right? Yeah, absolutely. So for the listeners who may not be familiar with you and your background, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, no, I, that's great. Thank you very much. So again, my name is Michael Monica. I spent 24 years in the Air Force as a combat controller. When I retired, I was the chief of, the, of our entire group, which is all, all our enlisted folks around the globe. Um, you know, I was stationed in many places. The, the, the pipeline for combat control is about two years long, so I spent my first couple of years in training. And then, you know, I was stationed in Washington State, and I went to Germany. I spent a lot of time in North Carolina working with our Tier 1 unit there or as an instructor or uh, we have a couple other units there and then uh, went back to McCord for a little bit, went down and finished my career off in Florida. And, you know, I, I just had the benefit of being surrounded by great people my whole career and I had great assignments and got to do the things that combat controllers do, which is always a pretty big question in and of itself. Combat control, what is that, right? Right. So it probably makes sense for me to talk a little bit about that, right? Yeah, absolutely. That was actually going, going okay, to be sure. my next question. So that would be great if you can tell us a little bit about that for the people who may not be familiar with combat control and, and what you guys do. Yeah, so let's start off about what special operations forces are. Like each branch of the service has their own special operations force, and they have unique missions, right? Special forces do foreign internal defense, and SEALs do uh, interdiction on boats and things like that. They end up doing some stuff on land as well. Same thing with the Marines. Marines have a, a Marine support mission. What with, with the Air Force, we have combat controllers and pararescuemen. And combat control specifically, we are there to help uh, – incorporate aircraft into the, the ground order battle, if you will. So that takes many shapes and forms. As a combat controller, the base of our job is air traffic control. We all go through air traffic control school and are, are all certified air traffic controllers. The, the difference between us and normal air traffic controllers is the way we get to work, which is a special operations skill set, if you will. We parachute, we all dive, we ride motorcycles, we repel, we fast rope. All the unique ways to look, get to work are things we do. As a matter of fact, my first assignment when I was an airman I was on a winter warfare team, so I would spend a lot of time in Alaska, either ski touring or cross-country skiing or even downhill skiing, things like that, just to get to work. And then once I got there, I had to do my job. And, you know, so where does a combat controller's job? Well, first and foremost, we'll go to an area and we'll look for places to land airplanes where airplanes don't land. So we know what the criteria is for aircraft, all the different types of aircraft, and we can survey an area to make sure it's, the runway's wide enough and long enough to handle the aircraft that all the geometry in the local area can support that plane coming in and keeps those emergencies and things like that. Once we survey it, we get that approved, we then land the airplanes because we're our truck controllers, right? We can bring them in and take them out. We continue to assess the runway as it degrades. And we can tell people literally, this landing field can handle five more landings. 
to take off. And that, that lets planners in the rear understand how much stuff they can push onto the battlefield. Um, Panama is a great example. So in 1991, when we invaded Panama, combat controllers were some of the first people to go in there on helicopters to bring in the, the, the assault forces and land aircraft. We did the same thing in Afghanistan when we were in dry lake beds, landing airplanes where planes weren't supposed to land. Then what we end up doing from there is we push combat controllers out with different teams. So we have guys with special forces teams or SEAL teams or uh, Rangers, even coalition forces. I spent some time with the British SAS. And what we bring to them is long-haul communications, so either HF or satellite communications, but more importantly, the ability to talk to airplanes and drop bombs on bad guys. I often tell people that combat controllers are translators. We know what the ground commander needs, and we translate that's what the pilot uh, needs to hear so they can do what they, they get paid to do. And then we can tell the ground force commander why a pilot is telling them they don't want to do something. We put it in their terms very succinctly. So that is fundamentally the nature of combat controllers. We control airplanes. We bring Air Force to the fight, and we're typically not that deep. There's usually one or two of us with, with an entire ground force to to bring air power to bear on, on the battlefield. That's a lot for just a, a handful of guys to be able to go out and bring in such a powerful asset, the, the air power that, that comes in, whether it's you know landing and delivering troops or cargo or whatever the, the case may be, or even, like you said, dropping bombs on bad guys. All of those things are incredibly important to the success or the failure of any mission. And so uh, that has to be an awfully stressful job for, for people to do when you're out there and it's maybe just yourself or, or a small team of guys who are out there trying to accomplish this mission. You know, so, so what's the stress, like in, stress levels like in, in those types of operations? Well, it, it's pretty high, as you can imagine. So, you know, one thing I failed to talk about is we also have a humanitarian mission. So, and, and the same stress level applies there. So, go back to Hurricane Katrina in, in New Orleans. When Hurricane Katrina wiped that area out, we had combat controllers landing helicopters and airplanes on roads to go in and bring in relief and then take people out and bring in aid and those types of things. Did the same thing in Haiti in 2010. And just last August, the same exact thing in Haiti again after their, their earthquake. Uh, so where there are natural disasters on a global scale, you'll find combat controllers that are doing their job. And like you said, that is a high-pressure situation, right? You put uh, five to 12 guys on the ground um, running an airfield, either in humanitarian crisis or in, in combat, or you have one combat controller with a team from either another service or even another country, you're the only person there. You know, when, when we would uh, rotate guys into Afghanistan, uh, we'd send a, a combat controller in, and they'd spend seven months with whatever team they were with. And they were the new guy. The second they got on the ground, it was, hey, you're my combat controller. Great. Uh, and they wouldn't know your name for the first couple weeks. They'd just call you Air Force because they didn't know you. Um, but you're literally making uh, life or death decisions. You're in a firefight, and the ground force commander saying, I went bombs dropped on that target. And you're looking at him, usually as an E4 or an E5, saying, sure, we can't drop bombs on that. I know you want to, but we can't. Here's why. Now, if we manipulate the battlefield a little bit, I might be able to get you the air support. And many times they, they're able to drop the bombs, but you start throwing hospitals and mosques and, and civilian casualties in there. That combat controller sometimes has to deliver bad news to the ground force commander. And that's a tough thing. You're on the ground. You've only been there a couple of days. You've got an officer from another branch of service yelling at you, telling you what he wants. And your job is to be calm, cool, and collected, assess what's going on, apply the rules of engagement to the battlefield, and advise the ground force commander what he can and can't do. And nobody getting shot at wants to hear what they can't do. So, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to train a combat controller, especially a young combat controller, to be able to do that. Uh, give them, arm them with the information to do it, 
armed them with the skills to do it, armed them with the wherewithal to look somebody in the eye and say, I know we're getting shot at, but right now we've got to do something different. Um, it, it's a lot of stress for any one person. Oh, it certainly is. And to have that confidence when you are, like you said, an E4, E5, and you're talking to the ground commander and telling them, no, I can't do this, or, or this is not an option right now. You, you have to have a little bit of confidence behind you and, and know that uh, that you know your stuff, that you're telling them the right thing and that you're accurate in your assessment of the situation, because you don't want to be telling the wrong thing to the wrong people and especially in a combat situation where literally lives are at stake and people could get killed. So, so I, I can only imagine that the amount of stress that uh, combat controllers have to go through, plus all the other things that you guys do, like you're talking about, you know, parachuting, fast roping, you know, all these other skill sets that you have on top of knowing how to land the planes, get the planes to where they need to go and, and everything else that, that goes with that. So yeah, definitely a lot of stress involved there. I, I can only imagine. So what about, let's fast forward a little bit and let's talk about the Combat Control Foundation and what that's all about and how it got started, how you got involved with it and, and what it does for the people who are out there in the combat control community. Yeah, let, let's start off with the need, right? So when you look at a community like ours, it is a high-risk community. Just getting to work gets you hurt. Just training to get to work gets you hurt, right? Crash motorcycle, you know, as a, as a young guy, I flew into a fence one time under a parachute. None of that's good, right? So we have a high injury rate. You're also out doing high-risk missions, which means you're getting shot at more than the average person. So your chances of being wounded or, or killed in combat are greater. And then the longer-term effects of all the stress you're under, whether it's the stress of you having a tough conversation with the ground force commander or you're constantly planning and moving out on missions because you're turning every single night, you're losing teammates along the way. And by definition, when you bring air power to bear, you are killing bad guys on the battlefield, and you're not just killing one of them. Literally, in the early days of war, war in Afghanistan, when it was the Wild West, single combat controller was killing thousands of people at any given time. The entire ridgelines of Taliban who were shooting at us and, and assaulting us were dropping bombs on that entire ridgeline, taking people out by the hundreds. Um, that all wears on you over time. And you know, over the past 20 years, we've seen the effects of that. The, either the injuries are building up or the stress is building up and it manifests in substance abuse of some sort, there are sleep problems, there are domestic issues, there are relationship issues. So while combat control has been around since 1953, and we've had people doing this type of work ever since then, it has become more acute in the past 20 years, merely because our country is at a 20-year war, and that war was really tailor-made for the skill sets that combat controllers bring to the table. There was a period of time in the early days of the war where Special operations team weren't allowed to go out of their uh, forward operating base to engage the enemy without a combat controller because of the asymmetric uh, nature of what we do. 12 people with air power can take on hundreds of thousands of people. Those same 12 people, while highly trained and, and good at what they do, and even have the will to go out there and do it, you're just not as effective because there's an attrition aspect to that. So with, with the past 20 years of all, all that's been going on, we've been seeing the negative effects of guys going out and doing this job. And we just realized we, we need to take care of them. For years, decades, we had an association. That association was great about bringing people together. And if we really need to help somebody, we could pass the hat around the association and we could help take care of our people. But we weren't able to do it on scale. If you look at some of the other foundations out there, they raise a significant amount of money. Um, 
and we just decided we need to do this. We need to take care of our people and their families. So that's where we started it. We started it three years ago. We really just kind of got our legs under us last year. We were raising decent money. And as soon as we started raising money and started advertising to people, hey, we have money. We're here to help you guys. Problems began to surface even more. People called us, I'm struggling. I need some help. Sometimes it's somebody who's dealing with PTSD, and we need help to quickly get them into a system because the VA doesn't move fast enough. Sometimes it's substance abuse, and we get them to a system over there or a facility that can help them deal with that. Other times, it's things where the VA and the Air Force has gaps. What I won't do is I won't bash the VA and the Air Force. They go out there and they do the best they can, but they're big bureaucracies, right? I had a guy who worked over a decade ago. He called me back in January, and he didn't realize I was part of the foundation. He just called me to talk. He said, Mike, I'm struggling with some things. He said, well, tell me what's going on. He said, well, I got MED at 19 years. I separated in October. I haven't received one dime from either the VA or the Air Force since then. And the house my wife and I bought, we found black mold, and we spent all our savings. They dumped fifty thousand dollars in the health and welfare of their house because you can't live in a house um, that's got black mold. And he broke down on the phone. He said, "Man, we're struggling to eat meal to meal." I immediately called John Glowacki, who's our CEO of the foundation. I said, "Hey, here's what we got going. Um, we definitely should help this family." So John came in and he gave them some very quick financial bridge money to to get them through the immediate effect. And then John and I reached into the Air Force, to people we know, we said, hey, who can we call to help solve this problem? And they connected us with the right person. We connected our guy with them, and they're working on it. As a matter of fact, as of last week, we think they've kind of got everything fixed, and he's going to start getting back pay, so he'll be taken care of. But that's the type of stuff the foundation helps take care of. It's not just PTSD. It's not just gunshot wounds. It's not just helping families that have killed in action. It's helping people solve very real problems that are acute to them. And that's important because there are a lot of people who are probably out there struggling on their own, just like this person that you were talking about, who have sort of lost faith in the system where they may have gone to try to get some assistance and they're either turned away or the process is just taking too long and they just give up on it and they say, okay, well, I'll just figure it out on my own. But there are organizations like yours who are out there who want to help, who can offer some, like you said, some financial assistance, some uh, other assistance to get them back on their feet so that they aren't struggling by themselves. They can help get the help that they need in a much faster manner because like you said, those big bureaucracies, not to bash them at all, but they're not the fastest moving organizations, right? But when you have a, a smaller, much more nimble uh, organization like yours, you're able to make the moves and do the things that are needed to be done in a much faster manner. So it it's excellent that organizations like this even exist because, you know, if, it, if we all just relied on the VA or the Air Force or the Army or Navy or whatever, it, it, it would probably just bog the system down too much and we wouldn't be able to get nearly as much done just relying on those few organizations. So, so I, I appreciate that you guys even exist to be able to do this type of stuff. Yeah, there, there are other aspects to it as well, right? So, <clears throat> Unfortunately, and most people in the military are familiar with this, right? We, we have a high suicide rate, and we get that phone call about once a quarter, and there's nothing more devastating than that phone call. So how, how do we get in front of that? How do we try to prevent that? Or how do we help quickly, right? If, if, 
if I'm thinking about suicide, the last place I'm calling is the VA. I'm calling one of my bros. And one of my bros, the bro network, then spreads it. And we had, we've had that call. Hey, Joey's in a bad spot. We will put Joey's best friend on a plane to get him to him that night. And while he's on his way there, we will find a, a place to help Joey deal with what Joey's dealing with. The VA just can't move that fast. Again, it's not an indictment to them. They are a big governmental system, and they have processes they've got to follow. We don't. If somebody needs a dog, while we want to validate that the things that the guy says happened to him happened, we're a small community. We can do that. I'll go buy a dog tomorrow if that's going to help somebody prevent from doing something more tragic. We're also working with the active duty force. So we met with the wing leadership about three weeks ago. We sat down and said, what are the things you need help with? Because you can't do everything yourself. And for them, they said resiliency help and transition assistance. So we built programs around that very specific thing, right? We, as they host resiliency events, there are certain portions that we will come in and help fund to make it a good event, not just for the member, for he and his wife or he and his child. And then as far as transition assistance, we've connected with a couple organizations, one that helps us teach guys how to transition, one that helps us get jobs for our folks, and then another one that helps us engage the VA intelligently. Most military people, when they get out, they think they're going to the VA for a normal annual physical. So that's how they behave. The fact is that's not what the VA is doing. The VA is running a checklist on you. And they really don't care that you flew into a fence 20 years ago. They won't understand the effect of it. So when you teach somebody how to engage the VA appropriately, then they get a more appropriate rating, which impacts them for the rest of their life. It impacts them financially. It impacts them with their health care and, and their benefits. So uh, we've partnered with an organization that as we raise money, we'll say, hey, we're going to fund this much. We'll, we'll push guys in that program all day long. Uh, and if they say, hey, you've run out of money, then we'll go get more money. And we'll funnel it in there. But the goal is to help folks as they transition out so that they don't get to that terminal point where they feel helpless. Yeah, because that helpless feeling, you almost aren't thinking right at that point where you feel like uh, th there's nobody out there, that there's nothing left for you, all hope is lost, all that kind of stuff go starts running through your head. And you may not even think there's an organization like this out there who can help solve that specific need that you might have, or even in a more holistic approach where maybe it's more than just uh, one specific need where maybe you're having trouble at home because uh, you're having trouble at work and that you're not making enough for the, you know, the family situation that that pops up. And, and so it's creating all sorts of issues, right? But if you can get drilled down to the root of those issues, you know, you can start to improve many things throughout the person's life. And so, you know, things like what you guys are doing with that transition assistance, uh, even job searching and, and all that kind of stuff could really help the overall picture, uh, not just that one small subset of the, the issue that people are, are dealing with, right? That, that's correct. And we, we you know, it's, we just had a, a thing happen this weekend. Somebody called me and said, look, one of our gold star mothers is having a, a challenge. So they, they called me and explained what was going on. And I reached out to her. I happened to know her and said, hey, I heard there's, you know, some things going on. She said, yeah, sure, we've got it. And as she explained it to me, you can hear the distress, right? You just hear it building up. And I said, look, if you're somewhere here right now, he'd be helping you with this, right? She said, yeah. I said, we're your sons now. Let us help you with this. And that changed the conversation because she hadn't looked at it that way. She looked at it as her problem that she had to solve as an adult, which is absolutely true, right? We all have our own problems that we've got to solve. But her son was killed in combat, and he's not there to help take care of her. So that's what we should be doing. So 
And we reached in, we said, okay, here's a couple of things we think we can do for you. Some of it financial, some of it in other ways. Um, and it was just, you could hear the stress come out of her voice. She went, thank you. I'm grateful. And she's going to come to our fundraisers and she's going to help spread the word of, you know, what an organization like this can do. Because there's a lot that we can do. And it's our job to raise funds and take care of our people. And nobody will take care of our combat controllers and their families better than we will. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. And that's great. I'm glad that you guys are doing all the, this stuff. For the people who are out there in this community, whether it's their families or the, the veterans themselves or the, the people who were involved in this, I know a lot of times people, uh, like you're saying, they might be a little bit too proud and they might just look at this as, this is my problem. I need to take care of this. I need to figure it out. So they may or may not be quite as willing to reach out to get the assistance that you're offering. But if they are looking for that assistance, or even if they have a friend or family member who wants to reach out, where can they go to get in touch with you to get the assistance that they are, are looking for? Yes, yeah, so I'm going to give you a bit of a nuanced response. And then I'll give the very clear cut one. So the Combat Control Association, the foundation, we are connected. We are built like this so that we don't separate. So the first thing I would say is if you were ever a combat controller, you should join the association. Go on to combatcontrol.team and join. And the reason for joining isn't so that you can pay dues or so you have to show up to any event. It's so that you're in the system and you know how to connect with your teammates. Not just for you. If you hear somebody's having trouble, you now are into the network and you know how to connect with people. Because, you know, four, six, eight years after you've gotten out, if you're not still in the group, you're out of the group. You don't know how to connect into it. So the association is the way to do that. Um, come to our events so that you can just come and spend time with your teammates. And we all have struggles, every single one of us. There's value in us talking to each other about it, you know, even if it's just over a beer at the VA or at a reunion, something like that. That's the more nuanced response there. The very clear response is if you know of somebody who needs help, go on to combatcontrol.team, type in a message saying, I know somebody needs help, who can help me? And we will pick up the phone and call you very quickly. My phone number is 253-973-2865. Call me or text me. Tell me who you are and what you're looking to do, and I will make sure that we connect as quick as possible. The situation where I was telling you we had a guy who hadn't gotten paid in four or five months, and he and his wife were moving meal to meal, within four hours of contact of him calling me, we had money in his bank account that he and his wife could not have to figure out where their next meal was coming from. Money is not always a solution. So the next day, is when I was talking to the Air Force. Within 12 hours of talking to him, I was talking to somebody of equal rank to me in the Air Force, explaining them what was going on, telling them I needed their help, and they responded. Um, not everything can be solved in four, eight, or 12 hours. Our commitment is we will respond as soon as you let us know, and we will respond with the veracity that's required. And when you have a group of people who have practiced all these years of training and actually doing these types of missions that require a calm, cool, collected approach in very high stress situations, you probably have a group of people who are ready, willing, and able to help out in any way that they can. And they'll move mountains to get things done, I'm sure, just based on some of the stuff that you're talking today, talking about today, it seems like it, that's just a no-brainer. Like that, that's too easy, and and that's just what you guys will excel at, right? That's a fact, and it, it actually goes both ways, right? Anybody who 
I surround myself with tell you I don't ask for help. I was trained to be this independent, autonomous person to go get things done, and I'm not allowed to make excuses. That's how we all are. So we won't ask for help. That's the value of being part of an association or staying in contact with your teammates because we know each other like siblings, right? Somebody can look at me and go, there's something wrong with Mike. Mike is having a bad day. And when they come up and ask about it, I may talk about it, but I'm never going to openly go, hey, I need help. So by, by being in the fold, you're able to look out better for your teammates. You're also allowed to be around your teammates. Your teammates can be looking out for you. Rarely do I get the phone call where somebody says, I need help. I always get the phone call that says, I saw Joey yesterday. Joey's struggling. Can we reach out to Joey? And once you do, it takes 10, 15 minutes to get Joey to break down a little bit and go, okay, yeah, here's what's going on. And then we can figure out what we can do to help. Sometimes he doesn't need help. Sometimes he just needs to talk. Um, other times he needs something tangible and it's our job to help him figure out how to do that. And many times it's us picking up the phone, calling somebody. Like I've called the VA before and said, you're not doing this thing you're supposed to do for this person. Help me understand why. Um, and a lot of times it's a miscommunication. So just having another person there to help advocate for you matters. So yeah, it's, I, we do have a strong team behind each other. I know that I call any one of my friends and they would give me the shirt off their back in another second. The problem is I won't spend two seconds on self-help. So we're we're a bit of a dichotomy in our personalities. Right. And it's good to be a part of that community where people are looking out for each other. And so that the association that you're talking about, I think eligible to be part of that association, combat controllers and, and everything, I, I think you guys should definitely just be a part of that organization, that association, and uh, look out for each other. That, that's the, probably the best way, especially if for any of the listeners, if what Mike was just saying resonates with you, if it's if you're that type of person who knows that you're not going to reach out for help on your own, it's just your personality or just kind of what you've been trained to do or not to do, I guess, in this case, join the association because there's going to be people out there who are looking out for you and they are going to recognize when you need the help, not just like a, a crutch thing, but like a real legit need. And you may not need anything right now, but who knows, five, 10 years from now, you might need something. And and that's where this type of support and organization comes in. So uh, definitely reach out and, and join that organization. Uh, that way you're able to get that assistance when you need it. The foundation and everything that you guys are doing, like any nonprofit organization, you have your financial needs. You know, you talked about all the, the financial things that you help people out with. You probably need some volunteers that can help out with events and other things that you have going on. If one of the listeners is out there and they want to make a donation or volunteer to help out in one way or another, what are the needs that you have and how can they reach out to get in touch to, to volunteer and, and everything else? Yeah, so for donations, we welcome all donations. A dollar helps us. Right. Any dollar that comes in helps, even if it's one dollar. Uh, we have a person who habitually donates thirty dollars a year. Uh, he previously did it to the association. Now he has transferred that to the Combat Control Foundation. And you know, I think some folks would go, "Well, what does thirty dollars buy you?" I said, "Well, thirty more dollars than we had yesterday, and it will go to a good cause. It will absolutely help somebody on the front lines who needs something." So, any donation is is welcome, and that is best done on our website, combatcontrol.team. We've got a donate button. We made it as easy as possible. So any donations are great. Volunteers are always welcome. We have programs that we're staying very specific to how we take care of our spouses or how we take care of health and welfare. We're running scholarships for our 
the children of our of our teammates. We also got programs around our, our Gold Star family. So if somebody wants to volunteer and be part of that with us, absolutely, uh, we'd love to have those people on our team. Again, go on the website. You can send us a message saying, "Here's who I am. Here's what I'd like to. Here's I'd like to volunteer time, or how can you use me? Or hey, here's something specific I have." The other thing that that we do a great job of is we partner with other organizations. And I'll give you an example. So I told you how we are helping people navigate the VA. Well, Project One Veteran at a Time, OVAT, is run by one of my teammates that I, I spent 20 plus years working with. And we partner with him. I don't need to reinvent the wheel. So if there's another organization out there that says, hey, CCT, Combat Control Foundation, I think I can help you, give us a holler because we absolutely want to partner with organizations. I don't want to go spend a whole bunch of money building something that already exists. I would rather get the money in vet the organizations, make sure that they are what they say they are, and then partner with them and share the funding to make sure that that, can, that we're taking care of our people the appropriate way. The days of one organization owning everything and building it from the ground up, they're gone. It doesn't make sense. It's inefficient. That's not a good use of donors' dollars. And we want to make sure that we are good, prudent vendors of, of our donors' money because they work hard for it. Giving to an organization is difficult. You have to make sure they're a good organization. Well, we're going to live up to that. We are going to be the best organization out there, and we're going to make good use of every dollar that comes in the front door. And that's excellent. So anyone who is looking to make a donation or reach out and volunteer, again, combatcontrol.team is the website. Go there, click the donate button, or or send them a message let them, letting them know that you want to help out. Or if you have an organization that, that you want to get involved and uh, partner up, reach out get in touch. I'll have that link in the show notes so that anyone can grab it from there. If you're not in a place where you can write it down right now, like in the car or something like that, check out the show notes. You can grab it from there later. Mike, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today and, and talking about the Combat Control Foundation, learning a little bit more about what combat controllers do and the stresses that are placed on them. Uh, I think that's one of those jobs in the military that, you know, even as a veteran myself, you know, I knew it existed, didn't know a whole lot about it. You know, I, I think it's a crucial piece of what we do around the world and different operations that we take part in. And so I, I really appreciate you coming on, taking the time to share not only the foundation, but what combat controllers face on a day-to-day -day basis. I really do appreciate you uh, joining me and sharing all of that. So thank you. Hey, Scott, thank you and your teammates at Drive On for having it. We're grateful for the time you gave us. We're excited about the things that we're doing in the future. And, you know, I talked a lot about combat control, but I'll also tell you that we're not just helping combat controllers. Every military organization has a whole bunch of support around them, right? So we have radio maintenance people, parachute riggers, flight support people, all those things. And they're part of our team as well. While it is the combat control fund, anybody that's connected with our community that needs help, we're helping take care of them because it's the right thing. They committed a lifetime and put their lives on the line to help defend this country and support our guys in the field. Our job is to take care of them for the rest of their lives. And that's what we're going to do. That's excellent. Thank you again. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to the Drive On Podcast. If you want to check out more episodes or learn more about the show, you can visit our website, driveonpodcast.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Drive On Podcast. 